and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. He wants everyone to have a Bible and to know the Bible, and uh, we desire the same thing for you as well. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you've shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the perfection of it, how balanced it is, how we need every line, every precept, every jot, every tittle to accomplish its purpose in our lives to give us just the full experience and relationship with you that you want us to have to provide just the perfect safeguards in our life, Lord, as we walk with you in the fallenness of this world. And we thank you for what this passage is intended to do in our hearts, Lord, in bringing us into great intimacy of relationship with you today and then safely delivering us, Lord, into the glory of heaven and a future day. And so we ask that you'd bless this passage to our hearts Give us your understanding of it, Lord. Make it ours, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that this letter is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are experiencing a tremendous hardship and and great, great difficulty and persecution because of their faith in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And as a result of the hardship and as a result of the persecution, in order to escape uh, the difficulty of their circumstances, they are being tempted to abandon their commitment to Christ and to return to a system of legalism and of works as a means of salvation, to abandon the salvation provided by Christ that we receive as a gift by simply putting our faith or trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins and then to return to a salvation 
based upon good works or based upon human effort, which, of course, is no salvation at all. Now, this is why the writer of the book of Hebrews is constantly encouraging and uh, we should say even more strongly uh, exhorting them to perseverance. All the way through the book, he's exhorting them to continue in their commitment to Christ for salvation and not to be drawn away from that salvation or from Christ under any circumstances. I'm going to read with you some of the examples from the book, and you can turn to them if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 2, and I like to put them, just cluster them all together so that in one uh, couple of minutes of time you can realize the strength of what the writer is writing to them of the importance of not falling away from Christ but being steadfast and following. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Then turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He grows even stronger as the letter goes on. He said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Stronger than before. And he gets stronger still. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. He said, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? And then just a few verses down, chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. But the just shall live by faith. But if any draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. And you can go on. For those of you who are taking notes, and write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, where the exhortation is equally strong. Now, 
This text that we're looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 6 contains probably the strongest warning against apostasy of all. And I want to reread verses 4 through 6 with you once again. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, some of you are very familiar with this passage, and you already realize that uh, in coming to this particular passage, that not every Christian is in a, uh, agreement on exactly what the passage is saying and what the author is communicating here. And I want you to know that while I will lay out what I believe the passage is teaching, that I do recognize that as I teach from the passage today, that there will be some who disagree with my understanding of the passage, which is perfectly fine. We can agree to disagree agreeably, as the old saying goes. There are four main and differing views of this passage. And uh, while I disagree with all four of them, actually, in, in, to some degree, but degree, uh, disagree uh, fairly strongly related to three of those particular views, uh, I do understand what those who hold those views are trying to protect. And so I respect that. And I respect their efforts to um, rightfully divide the Word of God, even if I don't agree with them. Well, the four principal views here is, number one, and I think this would be the dominant view, and that is that the writer is addressing those who profess to be Christians, but who actually are not. And thus, when he speaks of them falling away from their commitment to Christ, it merely reveals that they were never born again to begin with. And those who hold this particular position, I think, are doing the commendable thing of trying to protect the Christian's assurance of salvation. My problem with this view, though, and the Lord knows that I would love to hold this view, that what it's describing is people that were never born again to begin with and that time and, and difficulty as it arose revealed the fact that they weren't when they uh, rapidly fell away. I would love to believe that about this passage because it would make everything very tidy for me. I have tried to believe that because it would make life a lot easier uh, for me. But the problem that I have is I cannot get the writer's description of those that he is talking about in verses 4 and 5. I can't in my mind get that to refer to anyone other than someone who is truly a Christian and truly born again. A second view is that the writer is laying out a hypothetical situation to these Hebrew believers. In other words, this is what would happen if a Christian could lose his salvation. But he can't lose his salvation. But if he could, there would be no possibility of repentance. Now, that is completely inconceivable to me. 
As you read the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews, by the Spirit of God, I mean his, his thought processes are absolutely watertight. I mean, it's amazing how, how he lays things out. So it's inconceivable to me that the writer would waste time warning against a hypothetical impossibility. That's illogical. doesn't sound like the writer of the book of Hebrews at all, and certainly not the Holy Spirit. There isn't a teacher in the world who desires to be clear on any subject, much less the most important subject in the world, and that is the subject of salvation, who would ever muddy the waters by doing this kind of thing. So he is warning against a very real possibility concerning something. And he communicates in verse 9 that as, as Christians, they could choose to do, but he was confident that they would not do. So these are Christians who are capable of doing what he is telling them not to do, and it's not a hypothetical situation at all. You would never, ever want your listeners to become concerned or worried about an impossibility. And certainly not the writer of the book of Hebrews, who all the way through the book is expressing the greatness of his love for these Jewish Christians in a way that is the hardest sometimes, and that is to tell them the truth, a truth that uh, not everyone will tell you about uh, spiritual things. So nobody, it's inconceivable to me that he would say, oh, by the way, allow me to introduce an impossible hypothetical situation into our discussion. I just don't get that. Number three, the third view is that the writer is not warning concerning salvation, but rather that he's warning concerning Christian service and maturity. In other words, that this is speaking to the Christian who's fallen away from progressing in their Christian life and progressing in, uh, into Christian maturity in their Christian life. And so as a result of their sin and their backsliding or their refusal to mature uh, in their Christian life, then they forever lose opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom of God in this world. Now, all of that is, is true, but it's beside the point. And the problem that I have with it with that view, uh, with the view that this addresses backsliding or Christian service, is that the backslider can repent. We say praise the Lord for that. The backslider can repent and so can the carnal Christian. Whatever the writer is addressing here puts a person in a place where it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, as he says in verse 6. The fourth view is that the writer is addressing the possibility of a Christian losing his salvation. And I believe that this is what the writer is speaking to with one very major distinction. I absolutely do not believe that any Christian can ever lose their salvation. But I do believe that they can leave it. And to say that someone can lose their salvation introduces a doubt into salvation that is very, very wrong in my opinion. And the tone of the entire New Testament 
is to encourage Christians and to emphasize the security of a believer's salvation. I do not believe, I do believe rather, that a Christian can leave their salvation, that they can choose to become an apostate. Now, please understand, there is a world of difference between losing something and leaving something. And the distinction is important to understand. To lose something is unintentional. It's not deliberate. It's accidental. We don't lose things deliberately. We lose things unintentionally, against our will, against our desire. It's something that we really didn't want to do, but we lost it. When we lose our keys somewhere in the house, we never do that intentionally. Where did I leave those keys? It's an accident. Didn't mean to do it at all. And now here's this appointment that I've been waiting for six months and the time is ticking away, tick, tick, ticking away. And I'm going to be late for this appointment now. And I'd give up to half of my kingdom to find those silly car keys and be on my way. So no one can lose their salvation because that would be contrary to their will. No one can lose their salvation contrary to their will. But to leave something is entirely different because that's not accidental. That's a deliberate choice. And that is a deliberate, conscious action. And I believe the passage is warning against a deliberate, willful apostasy on the part of a Christian. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment as we begin to uh, examine the uh, passage uh, systematically. Please, do not leave this place and tell people that Pastor Damien believes that you can lose your salvation. I've been told that at the back door, and I want to just give that person the old three stooges double poke in the eye before they can put the defense up. I do not believe that any Christian can lose their salvation. But I do believe on the basis of an honest, intense, decades-long wrestling with this passage that a person, a Christian, can leave it and become an apostate. Now, the writer is warning these readers against something obviously that's very, very serious. It's a sin that's so great. It is a something that is so great that if a person commits it or engages in it, the result is that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You notice in verse 4, for it is impossible. And then down in verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. So it's like, wow, this is pretty serious business, whatever it is he's talking about. Now, notice his description of those that he is warning against committing this sin or committing this something in verses 4 and 5. 
He declares those, uh, he declares, he writes this concerning those who were once enlightened, verse 4. And I think it's safe to understand that this refers to a Christian's conversion experience. Before we ever became Christians, we walked in spiritual darkness. But once we became Christians, we became spiritually enlightened. Paul wrote of this in his Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. He said, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. And then very, very significantly... The writer's only other use of this Greek word for enlightened in the entire book of Hebrews is found in chapter 10, verse 32, where it clearly speaks of salvation. He said, but recall the former days after you were illuminated, speaking of their salvation experience, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. The second phrase that he uses to describe who he is warning, uh, giving this warning to in verse 4 is those who have tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? The heavenly gift is salvation, the gift of everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins that is received as a result of putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. The same Greek root Greek word is used for gift in that passage in Ephesians and in our passage here in Hebrews. We also remember very significantly that Jesus identified himself as the gift of God while talking with that Samaritan woman at the well concerning her need for salvation in John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God, speaking of himself, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now notice that the writer speaks of those who have tasted the heavenly gift in the past tense. It isn't that they aren't saved. Their past includes a salvation experience. Now, somebody might say, and many, many people do, in an effort to declare that this really isn't speaking of Christians, but only of those who have professed to be Christians but really aren't. Sometimes they'll say, well, um, just because you've tasted something doesn't mean that you've swallowed it doesn't mean that you've internalized it or uh, allowed it to become a part of you. And so attempt to explain this away as applying to Christians. And the problem with that objection is that the writer uses the very same Greek word for tasted in chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, 
But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't just taste death and whisk it around in his mouth and spit it out. On the cross, he fully experienced and partook of death. And likewise, this writer is saying that these Christians fully partook of salvation through faith in Christ. And then he says in verse 4, those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So he describes these people that have this possibility of committing this great sin or this great something as having become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And this again refers to being born again, a a Christian spiritual birth where the Holy Spirit comes into our life at our invitation, at the moment that we put our faith in Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That is, he doesn't belong to God. He's not a Christian. We become Christians by virtue of the fact that we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And in that instant, the miracle of being born again is that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us the capacity now for relationship with God. Then he says in verse 5 that they have tasted the good word of God. And this speaks of the Christian who has uh, internalized the word of God, made it a part of their lives. And as a result of having this deep experience with the word of God, they have discovered the word of God to be good in their lives and to produce good in their lives. In other words, they have an experiential historical knowledge and relationship with the Word of God. And then also in verse 5, they have tasted of the powers of the age to come. That is, they've experienced the power of God in their lives. Christians don't have to wait until we go to heaven to experience the power of God. We experience the power of God now in our lives. We experience it the moment we became saved. We experience it in the miracles that He does in our lives and sanctifying us and making us more like Christ when He gives us revelation in His Word. I mean, we've read that passage 20 times, never saw that, and now I see that and it changes my life. That's a God thing. That's a miracle thing that He's done. And then when He inhabits our praises and so forth. And so as Christians, we have a little taste of heaven now in this life. And I'll tell you, as I look at that description in verses 4 and 5 of the person that the, that the writer is writing to, I can't see how it describes anyone other than a Christian. I want it to describe someone other than a Christian. But in being honest, I can't see how it describes anyone other than a Christian. And thus to me... This falling away that is impossible for a man to repent of can only refer to apostasy. And apostasy being when a person genuinely trusts in Jesus for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, and they experience all of the blessings listed in verses 4 and 5. 
But then they come to a place in their life when they deliberately and purposefully and willfully reject Jesus, his life, his teaching, his salvation. Because of some sin in their life, because of some moral darkness in their life, because of some arrogance or pride in their life or some so-called wisdom that comes out of that pride, they say of Jesus in Christianity, I don't want anything to do with him or Christianity anymore. I reject it. I reject him. I don't want him to be my savior. I don't want him as my Lord. I am finished. I'm through. That's it. And if they fall if they fall away into that once and for all, that is, they remain in that condition for the rest of their lives and die in that condition, there's no hope for that person because they've rejected the lone means of salvation, the only Savior of the world, who is Jesus himself. Well, someone might say, didn't Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are united in this. I love that passage. It's one of the strongest verses emphasizing the security of a Christian salvation in the entire New Testament. And I believe in the security of the believer. I believe that no one is able to snatch them out of Jesus' hands. A Christian uh, loses uh, where, where... where a Christian would lose their salvation against their will due to some outward force coming against them. They want to be saved. They're held by Jesus. Some outward coming against their faith in Christ, their relationship with Christ, that that they cannot be snatched out of Jesus' hand from without. But I do believe from our passage this morning that a person can choose to willfully, deliberately, and intentionally jump from his hand and leave the security of his hand if they choose to apostatize. There's a man that I respect as a Bible teacher. I think he's one of the five best Bible teachers in the whole wide world. And I listened to his teaching on this particular passage. And he kind of ma- he made fun. He referenced John chapter 10 as well he ought to have related to the security of the believer. But then he made fun of the idea of when he was in university or college or a friend who then spoke to him and said, no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand, but they can jump out of his hand. And he, and he made a mockery of that. And I, I, I think serious consideration ought to be given to that. I believe from the passage this morning that a person can choose to willfully, deliberately, intentionally jump from his hand, 
leave the security of his hand if they choose to apostatize. That is an entirely different thing from being snatched out of his, his hand. I don't think that once a person becomes a Christian that they lose their freedom to choose to either persevere or continue in their salvation and relationship with God or to apostatize. That's a choice I can make every single day as a Christian. I choose every day whether I'm going to walk with God or I'm going to apostatize or anything else between those two extremes. I make that choice. I don't think that when a person becomes a Christian, they lose their freedom to choose to persevere in their relationship with Christ and then continue in their salvation or to apostatize. Where somebody is saved, they, do, they don't want to be saved anymore, uh, it, and they don't want to be anything to do with God, they don't want to be God's child, they don't want to go to heaven, but they would be told, no, you can't change your mind now, you're going to heaven whether you want to or not. I mean, what are they going to look like up there in heaven? They don't want to be there and have these big cans on the street corner of some urban center and the fire's going, they're all smoking and dealing drugs, or what are they going to do up there? They want to be up there. I was going to force anyone against their will to go into heaven. If we no longer had a choice to either continue in that the salvation that God has provided for us and, and to persevere in that salvation, that relationship with Jesus, or a choice to then apostatize. If we did not have that choice, then all of the verses that we read earlier about perseverance would be meaningless. The writer would just be talking just to be talking, including verse 9 of this very same chapter. Now, personally, I don't have any problem with any of this. And I've worked as hard on this passage as any passage in my whole Christian life because I never want to misrepresent God on any issue, let alone an issue like this. But I don't have a problem with this, and I don't see any need to weaken what the writer is saying in Hebrews chapter 6 or to explain it away, to either weaken or explain away the security of a believer's salvation or to weaken or explain away a warning against apostasy. I believe that the Bible is a perfect book and it is perfectly balanced in what it accomplishes in our lives. And somehow, in order for us as Christians to spiritually navigate the fallen world that we live into on our way to heaven, we need two things. Number one, to have the overwhelming tone of the New Testament reassure us of the security of the believer related to the sureness of our salvation. And then number two, at the same time, include a warning against ever becoming an apostate. And I think it produces a sobriety that's healthy. I was listening just this week to a radio interview where a famous country western singer who at one time professed to be a Christian or professes to be a Christian 
But on the interview stated also that they, they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, but that all religions in their own way lead to God. That's an apostate position. There's a, a singer whose music I bought, uh, bought everything that he had because he got going with the Lord about the same time that I got going with the Lord. And that music really ministered to me in, in the early stages of my walk, and I still love the songs to this day and what they communicate. But he has since that time now come to believe and publicly make the stand as the same as this other fellow, and that is that he does not believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but there are many ways to be saved in many ways in order to get to heaven. My friend, that is apostasy. That is different, a different gospel than John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is a different gospel than the gospel that Jesus died to provide us with. And there are lots of these kinds of people who begin in one place in their Christian experience and stay there often for months and years and decades. And then the day comes in which they become an apostate and they need a passage like this in order to wake them up to the fact that this is not a game and they need to repent of their error and that the danger of of apostasy is real with very real consequences. And I think it does something good and healthy in a person's life and in the big picture of Christianity and professing Christianity. Now, let me clear a couple of things up because I've opened up a can of worms in some respects, and I want to get all the worms back in the can. There are false professors. There are people who profess to believe in Christ, profess to be Christians, and then when some great difficulty occurs in their life, the first time it really costs them something to stay faithful to God, then they abandon Christ, and they're just like the parable of the soils, and, and it just reveals that they had no lasting or deep commitment to the Lord. So they were never born again. They were just false professors. There are backsliders, those who are truly, genuinely born again, but they go back to practicing the sin and the lifestyle that they lived before becoming a Christian. Those people exist. Then there are apostates. Those who had a sincere faith in Christ at one time who have deliberately chosen to reject Christianity and to reject Christ. And sometimes only God knows the difference between those three. I can look at them and I can't tell you whether that person right there was a mere professor, never knew Christ at all, or they're backslidden, or they're an apostate. God looks at them, and it's completely clear to them. I look at them, and I say, they can be in any one of three camps. I don't have the foggiest idea what camp that they're in. But there is a difference between, uh, significant differences between a backslider and an apostate that does need to be made clear. First and foremost, 
a backslider will come back. A backslider will ultimately come back to the Lord. The apostate never will. An apostate can never be brought to repentance because there's no other gospel or salvation than the one that he has rejected. The backslider never denies or rejects the truth about Jesus or Christianity. I have talked to so many backsliders through the years. So have you. Are you kidding me? They'll defend Jesus in every argument they're ever in. They'll talk about the Bible. Don't you talk about Jesus that way? I'll slug you in the mouth. I mean, they'll, they'll defend Jesus like crazy. They just won't live for him right now. And you run in all kinds of people. Pastor, I, I know I should be living. I'm not living in all. I believe all, I, all that. And, 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 that's, and that's the part of the backslide. They don't reject the truth. They don't reject Christianity. They're just not living for Jesus at the moment. The apostate deliberately and purposely rejects Jesus and Christianity. And this is why it's so important. Now, let me just uh, do this. All of you who have fallen asleep, or I've lost your attention up to this point, now you have to rejoin me so that you don't go out and tell a bunch of lies about me. But more significantly than that, so that you don't misunderstand for your own life something that can really do some damage uh, to you. And, and so this is, this is why it's so important that the backslider never sees himself in the same condition as the apostate. As so often as you teach a passage like this, and, you te- and when you teach a passage like this, you've got a backsliders in the room, um, and they're absorbing all of it. Oh, no, I can never be, I can never repent. I want to repent. I, want to repent. <laughs> I didn't know I could never repent. And then now I know, but I want to repent. And that man up there, he's saying terrible things about me. And so they take and they start to confuse the whole thing, and they think that they can't repent and because... They still have a tender heart toward the things of the Lord. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They know they're doing wrong. They want to come back. And you, if you are back, then you need to come back today, not next week. So come back. The apostate sits in a room like this. Number one, he's not going to be in a room like this. But number two, he sits in a room like this and he doesn't care. You talk about not being able to repent and to come back from that condition, but the judgment that awaits him, the apostate doesn't care. The fact that you're alarmed by the passage is a revelation of the fact that you're not an apostate. You're a backslider if you're in that that condition. The Bible is filled with verses calling on backsliders to repent of their backsliding and return to God. Nobody doubts that a backslider can repent of their backsliding, come back to God, and ought to do it immediately. So if you regret your backsliding, you want to repent, and you want to return to God, that's an evidence that you're not an apostate. Apostate has no regret for their decision. They have no desire to return to God. Everyone who needs to repent, everyone who wants to repent, can repent and return to God. 
I think it's also important to realize that a person is not an apostate simply because they have honest doubts about something to do with Christianity. That God is not afraid of honest questions. He has answers to honest questions. And about half of what we learn as Christians, most of us, is where we come up against something in the Bible, something about God that we do not understand. So we look at that and we say, I don't understand that. I have a question about that. I have a doubt about that. I have a doubt about the wisdom of that. God speaks against a particular sin, maybe, that a person is engaged in. And the person looks at it and says, I have a doubt about the wisdom of that or the, the justice of that position of God. And so what does the person do? They begin to search the Scriptures to find out why, what does God say on this subject? Why does He say what He says? That person then goes to Christians who know more about the Bible than they do, who then gives them a biblical answer for the question that they're having, and then they realize, aha, God does know what he's talking about here. He is the smart one in this. I see his answer to my question, and I'm satisfied with that. That's That's how a lot of us learn all the way through. So honest doubts, if you have an honest doubt or you're in a a period of that related to some area of the Christian life, you're not an apostate for for doing that. That's uh, just part of a normal growth uh, process. Just make sure that you get to the Bible for your answers and not Barney or uh, Goober or Aunt B or anyone else. Get to the Bible for the answers to your questions and get to people who really do know their, their Bible and are mature in their knowledge of the Word of God. Additionally, I'd like to say anyone can repent and turn back to God all the way to their dying breath. But apparently the apostate won't care. If you care, you're not an apostate. So here you are, you're on your deathbed. There came a point where you just rejected all of it. I'm through. I'm done. That's it. And then they tell you, you've got a week to live. Well, let me think about that. And you rethink it. Now you want to give your life to the Lord, and you realize he was right all along. So I don't know if I can do that. Because of Hebrews chapter 6. No, you can do that. You know why? Because by virtue of the fact that that's happening in your life, you were never an apostate. You were a backslider and a stupid head <laughs> who thought you were an apostate, but you weren't. If you want to come back, we can always come back to our dying breath. And so those of you who are just highly sensitive spiritually and you're all aware of your imperfections and you wish that you were more like Jesus than you are, join the crowd and don't think that this passage has anything to do with you. If you're concerned that this is speaking to you, it's not speaking to you because an apostate doesn't care. Now, the reason why all of this is so serious, he tells us in verse 6, is because this kind of person crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and they put him to an open shame. Wow. In other words, Jesus died on the cross. 
He endured the cross, Hebrews will tell us later, despising the shame in order to save us. That cross wasn't fun for him. He endured that cross and he despised the shame of being treated by his creation that way. But he endured that, despising that shame in order that you and I might be saved. And we, he is glorified when we put our faith in him. But then to walk away from him is to publicly shame him again and just declaring to a Christ-rejecting world, Jesus isn't worth following, he's not worth living for, he's not worth dying for. And the world loves a convert away from Christianity and back into the world. They will make that person, they'll put them on a speaking circuit making 50 grand a speech because they love that kind of a testimony, that kind of, of, a, of, a, of a witness. The apostate actually subjects Jesus to an even greater shame than he experienced upon the cross. Because when he was on the cross, he was rejected by those who didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. But the apostate knows better, has experienced it, verses 4 and 5, and is willing to make Jesus look bad so that they can look good. And because the world doesn't realize that that's what's happening, it's always a bad reflection on the apostate, never a bad reflection upon Jesus. And this is what these Hebrews in their own way were being tempted to do by abandoning their commitment to Christ and to return to legalism. And so he comes in and strongly rebukes that temptation of theirs. Now, in verses 7 and 8, I'm almost done. In verses 7 and 8, he uh, comments on that particular issue uh, with an illustration from nature. And the point that he's making here is that if all of these blessings of verses 4 and 5 produce such a wonderful and blessed life in most people, verse 7, the fact that they don't produce wonderful things and in a blessed life in an apostate, verse 8, reveals that there's nothing wrong with God, his blessings, or his salvation, but there's something seriously wrong with a person who responds to God's blessings, responds to verses 4 and 5 with apostasy. And that kind of person can expect judgment. But he closes in verses 9 through 12 with encouragement. And he expresses his confidence concerning these Hebrew believers that they will not leave their salvation. And so in verse 9, uh, he uh, tells them, he makes sure that they know that he's not declaring them to be in the apostate category at the moment, but he doesn't dismiss the warning as having no application to them. He doesn't say, but, but I know this has no application to you folks at all. He's warning them. There's a perfect balance in the passage. He does not cast doubt on their salvation, but he does not lift or lighten the weight of the warning against apostasy off of them. It's a, it is a perfect Holy Spirit balance that is being spoken, just perfect for these people in that situation. And he declares 
that he's confident they'll be wise enough not to go in that direction of apostasy. He makes, verse 10, he makes mention of their history of service for the Lord and encourages them in uh, verse 11 to continue in that, to, uh, to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that they continue not only to walk with the Lord, but continue to serve the Lord and to serve his people all the way to the end. And then in verse 12, he expresses his desire that they wouldn't become sluggish or lazy in their Christian life, but that they would imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, what he's saying to them is this. Stop listening to those who are pleading with you to quit this Christian life. And get your eyes on other Christians who are committed to living and finishing their Christian life dominated by faith and perseverance. And he's telling them, there's plenty of those folks to put your eyes on. Get it off of these people that are trying to pull you away from God and your relationship with Christ and get it on people who give no thought to that kind of nonsense but are committed for the remainder of their days to persevere and walk faithfully with God all the way through this life and into the life to come. And that's a good exhortation. So what's the lesson? Don't become an apostate. What? You took that long (laughs) to say that? Yes. It's a gift. (laughs) Do not become an apostate. And it's a good word. And apparently, because it's in the Bible, it's an important word and an important warning for us. If you abandon Christ, it is a big deal because there is no other salvation except the one that is found in him. As Peter said before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, he said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So a good warning and a needed warning, a little piece of the puzzle in what is the totality of this Christian life that does something important in us as we navigate the fallenness of this world from where we are now into the glory of heaven. And we thank the Lord for the passage and what it produces in our lives. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We know that nothing is wasted. You never waste your voice. You speak because there's a need to speak. You instruct because there's a need for instruction. And we just embrace your truth, Lord, the strength of the exhortation, the strength of the warning. And we ask the person of your Holy Spirit that he would give this the needed place that it ought to have in each one of our hearts here today. 
And Lord, I pray that the backslider would repent of their backsliding today, that the one who is contemplating apostasy out of some love for sin or some arrogance or some disgusting, ugly pride where we can begin to think we're smarter than you, Lord. I pray you use this passage to wake them up to the fact that they're not smarter than you, that you see this thing all the time. You see it in their life from way off, and your warning is to repent of going in that direction and to continue to walk with you. I pray, Lord, that that message would find its needed place in each heart that is here today as well. And, Lord, we just thank you so much for our salvation. We thank you for the security of that salvation. Thank you, Lord, for our Savior. Thank you for our relationship with you. Thank you for how good you have been to us, Lord. And we really do think a person would have to be just spiritually insane to walk away from what we enjoy with you every day. And we're not interested in it in the slightest. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us the way that you do, for allowing us to live the life that we get to live every day. And we thank you in the name of the one who has made it possible. In Jesus' name.